Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and places mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Fletcher Christian, William Bly, and the real story of the mutiny on the bounty. There will also be more information concerning my novel, Is That Your Final Answer? Now let's get started with our story about the mutiny on the bounty. On April 28, 1789, the HMS Bounty was in the midst of a lengthy voyage that was commissioned by the British Navy to acquire a tropical plant known as breadfruit. The ship had recently left Tahiti, where five months were spent acquiring numerous saplings of the species that's fruit had a remarkable bread-like consistency. The ranking officer on the ship, Lieutenant William Bly, was headed for Jamaica, where breadfruit was intended as a potential source of food for the slaves toiling on the island's plantations. Initially, Bly's stewardship was no more unusually severe than any other British sailing vessel of the 18th century, but following the departure from Tahiti three weeks earlier, the lieutenant's behavior became erratically harsh, with severe punishment handed out for relatively minor offenses and increased verbal hostility towards some of the senior members of the crew. Bly was especially hostile to Fletcher Christian, especially after a recently botched attempt to acquire water on the island of Nomuka, present-day Tonga. The sailors, led by Christian, were met with hostility and violence by the local natives and forced to attempt to fill kegs with spring water, but forbidden by Bly to bring weapons, the British were chased back to the ship, failing in their mission. Calling Christian a formerly close associate, quote, a damned cowardly rascal after this failure, Bly further alienated both Christian and much of the crew, by accusing the first mate of stealing coconuts from the ship's private stores and then punishing everyone on board for this alleged theft. By April 28th, Christian, told by several crew members that they would support him no matter what he decided to do, made a fateful decision. At 5 a.m., accompanied by three other sailors, he entered Bly's unlocked cabin, forcibly restrained Bly with rope, and marched him onto the deck of the ship. After numerous members of the crew demanded to remain with Bly, he ordered that the Bounty's launch, a 23-foot craft, be lowered into the water. One by one, Christian forced various individuals who he felt were either hostile to him or opponents of the mutiny into the vessel. Confusion reigned as the boat exceeded its capacity. Some men begged to be left on the Bounty. Others wanted no part of the mutiny, and wished to take their chances on the high seas. With 18 men, not including Bly, the boat cleared the surface of the ocean by only seven inches. 
five days' worth of provisions were provided, and at the last minute Bly and four cutlasses were tossed into the boat. To the very last, the ship's commander pleaded with Christian to reconsider, but Christian refused. William Bly and 18 other men were then set adrift on the Pacific Ocean, 1,300 miles from Tahiti, the only inhabited islands in the vicinity most likely hostile to such refugees. If Bly's chances were slim, at least his major challenge was clear, survival until he could reach some outpost of civilization. For Fletcher Christian, the future was much more complicated. For as long as he lived, he would be a man without a country, hunted by the most powerful navy on the planet, a fugitive from what was certain to be severe judgment. What chain of events brought these two men to one of the most storied and dramatic moments in maritime history? Initially, Fletcher Christian was not destined for a naval career. He was born on the 25th of September, 1764, in the Cumbrian village of Eaglesfield. His father, Charles, was a wealthy attorney originally from the Isle of Man. Descended from several generations of Manx judiciary, it was the senior Christian's original aim that all three of his sons get an education and pursue the law. Anne Christian, Fletcher's mother, had brought her ancestral home of moorland clothes into the marriage, and initially the family lived a prosperous existence as landed gentry. Unfortunately, Charles Christian died when Fletcher was four years old, and his mother continued to spend and live lavishly, despite the lack of any meaningful income. Eventually, despite being bailed out a few times by wealthy relatives, Anne Christian fled to the Isle of Man, where she subsisted on a small annuity, safe from any prosecution for the massive debt she accrued during Fletcher's childhood. Not much is known about Fletcher Christian's teenage years other than that he was well-educated in the Cumberland area and spent his summers at his mother's residence on the Isle of Man. His uncertainty about a career was underlined by the fact that his first experience on board a naval ship did not occur until April 1783, when he was 18 and a half, considerably older than most of the boys of his peer group. But Christian's first ship, the HMS Eurydice, certainly provided a remarkable initial exposure to both the exotic locales of South Africa and India and the harsh daily life aboard a British Navy vessel. The 24-gun Eurydice had a crew of 160, including a unit of Marines, and Christian personally thrived on his new vocation, getting a promotion from midshipman to master's mate. Unfortunately, the end of hostilities in the American colonies meant less opportunities on board British naval ships, and Christian was forced to find any employment available, most likely on board a merchant ship. Through family connections, Christian approached Lieutenant William Bly, also currently relegated to commanding ships involved in the rum and sugar trade of the Caribbean. Although Bly was underemployed in his current position, he had a reputation as a skillful navigator who had served with Captain Cook during Cook's third and final voyage. Initially, Bly politely refused Christian's employment request, but was impressed when the young man offered to volunteer and work for nothing to gain valuable experience. Christian accompanied Bly on two voyages on board a merchant ship that was actually named the Britannia. By the end of the second voyage, 
Bly had taken a personal interest in Christian and was instrumental in getting Fletcher a subsequent position on board his next command, the HMS Bounty. The Bounty's mission was precipitated by the vision of one man, Sir Joseph Banks, an extremely wealthy scholar and scientist who interacted with the foremost British and European scientists and naturalists of his day. Banks eventually became an influential advisor to King George III and a member of the Royal Society, essentially Britain's Academy of Natural Science. At age 23, he sailed to Newfoundland and Labrador, having convinced George III that the discovery of new species of plants and wildlife should be a fundamental mission of the British Navy and government. Banks' scholarship and documentation of this voyage earned him a subsequent appointment on board the HMS Endeavour during the first South Pacific expedition commanded by James Cook. That Banks could bankroll eight other crew members helped to cement this prestigious posting. The three-year Endeavour journey, focused mainly on the exploration of current-day Australia, made both Cook and Banks famous throughout Britain. In 1778, Banks was elected president of the Royal Society and focused on the expansion of the first and most prominent botanical garden in the world, Kew Gardens. He also commissioned voyages focused on specific regions or botanical species. These included the northwestern Pacific efforts of George Vancouver and the Polynesian mission to transport breadfruit to the West Indies undertaken by William Bly and the crew of the HMS Bounty. Although Bly benefited from Banks' initial interest and influence, the voyage of the bounty did not get off to an auspicious start. Because at 220 tons, 85 feet, roughly half the size of Cook's resolution, the bounty was officially designated as a cutter, the smallest size in the British Navy. Commander Bly would still be a lieutenant and not a captain. Although out of respect he was addressed as captain, this was an unofficial title and this lack of promotion also had financial consequences as a lieutenant was paid less than a captain, despite Bly's command of the ship. Bly already taking a sizable cut in pay from what he could make commanding a merchant ship. Also, the ship's small size did not merit the assignment of Marines, whose presence would have made the subsequent unrest during the voyage inconceivable. The ship was completely overhauled, the normally spacious captain's cabin reconverted to a repository in anticipation of the breadfruit plants that were the focus of the mission. Bly's quarters became an atypical smaller cabin, this transformation delaying the ship's departure. That the Bounty's mission was of a low priority was further underlined when the Navy released other ships' orders while Bly cooled his heels on the southern British coast. Because the bounty's course necessitated sailing around Cape Horn to reach Tahiti, it was important to reach the region as quickly as possible during the Southern Hemisphere's warmer months. Bly did not receive permission to sail until late November, and extremely bad weather in the English Channel prevented his exit from the British coast until late December 1787. This delay meant that Bly did not reach the vicinity of Cape Horn until early April, Conditions were already so bad that he decided to break off and attempt to reach Tahiti via the Cape of Good Hope. Bly and Christian remained on good terms, enough so that Christian was designated as an acting lieutenant, unofficially second in command. While this may have endeared him to Christian, 
it seems to have alienated the sailing master, John Fryer. Fryer was also the source of the first official punishment meted out on the ship, the flogging of seaman Matthew Quintal for insolence and mutinous behavior. Although Bly did not personally observe these indiscretions, upon Fryer's mere report, the commander was obligated to administer punishment. Having previously observed some of James Cook's practices while at sea, Bly also implemented the same requirements. Unlike many British vessels of the day, which were filthy with crews that were unkempt, Bly demanded that the bounty be kept clean and reduced rations for sailors who failed inspections over cleanliness. Still, upon arrival in the vicinity of the Cape of Good Hope in late May, the morale on board the bounty remained solid. The ship remained in the Cape Town area for over a month, taking on fresh food and overhauling the ship after a demanding voyage. Letters written by Bly and others, delivered to Britain by ships that Bly interacted with in South Africa, indicate that the crew was healthy, enthusiastic, and stable. The commanding officer's relationship with Fletcher Christian at this point was so cordial that he even lent his subordinate money. Bly's only distressing issue was the ship's doctor and surgeon, Thomas Huggin, who over time was revealed to be profoundly alcoholic. Bly now headed for Tahiti via a route that took the bounty along the coast of South Australia, reaching present-day Tasmania in seven weeks. Only four other ships had ever landed in this remote area, and the bounty paused to explore the region. Here the first challenge to Bly's authority occurred when the ship's carpenter, Thomas Purcell, and Bly got into a heated argument on shore that resulted in Purcell being ordered back to the ship. As an officer, Purcell could not be flogged, but such insolence normally resulted in a court-martial. However, with no Marines and a tiny crew, Bly could not exert much authority and could not afford to lose the services of such a specialist. When Purcell and John Fryer became involved in a similar incident only three days later, Bly merely rebuked Purcell by temporarily cutting off his rations. More discord resulted from a dispute between Bly and Fryer when the sailing master refused Bly's request to sign the ship's expense account, a normally routine procedure. It necessitated Bly ordering the entire crew on deck to witness a public request to Fryer to do his duty. Flyer acquiesced, but the incident underlined growing discontent among even the officers on the ship. Fryer possibly was signaling that he had lost confidence in Bly after an incident that occurred days earlier. Out of nowhere, Bly received news from another officer that an able seaman, James Valentine, was now in critical condition after treatment administered by the ship's surgeon Huggin. Valentine had been bled by the doctor, a prescription for what he diagnosed as an asthmatic condition. This seems to have prompted a serious infection, which proved fatal, the able seaman dying only a day after the commander's dispute with Fryer. Bly prided himself on maintaining a ship consisting of a healthy, able-bodied crew, and this development was both personally and professionally disappointing. Huggin was now so habitually drunk that Bly ordered that any liquor be removed from the doctor's cabin. It was in the midst of this dysfunction that the bounty finally arrived at Tahiti on the 26th of October, 1788. The ship was sighted by islanders, and when word spread that it hailed from Britain, the origin of Cook's previous voyages, canoes literally swarmed the vessel. 
Now the crew was to live out the experience of visiting a veritable paradise, where all of the rumors they had heard were confirmed. With the discord that preceded the bounty's arrival quickly dissipated by such an environment, Bly turned his attention to ingratiating himself with the chieftains and rulers that presided over various parts of the island. To Tyna, the most powerful of these dignitaries, Bly conveyed the message that in exchange for the trinkets provided by King George III, he was most interested in receiving samples of the breadfruit tree. The six-foot-three-inch, 300-pound ruler and the rest of the island's hierarchy were thrilled that the king could be satisfied with a plant that was ubiquitous. Unfortunately, Bly's late departure meant that now he was forced to remain on Tahiti for the five-month monsoon season, unable to traverse the numerous storms and torrential rains that made sailing impossible during this time period. To acquire breadfruit, he hoped to transport to the Caribbean, Bly established a camp on shore to nurture the plants before they were then placed on the bounty. To operate and safeguard this facility, Bly commissioned a squad of seamen, the two gardeners on board and appointed Fletcher Christian as the officer in charge. This posting meant that unlike their shipmates who needed to spend nights aboard the bounty, Christian's group got to remain on the island overnight. Other than acquiring and locating specimens of breadfruit, the duties of the bounty crew while on Tahiti were minimal. Much of their time and energy was spent interacting with the women of Tahiti, and a lackadaisical attitude quickly prevailed at every level of command, much to Bly's increasing anger and frustration. One immediate casualty was the ship doctor, Huggin, who now had little to stop him from indulging full-time. After his death, Thomas Huggin was buried on Tahiti, his funeral well attended by respectful islanders. Petty thefts or perceived dereliction of duty elicited an increase in floggings for the ordinary seamen and verbal abuse for the officers, Christian especially singled out by his former protege. A complete breakdown of authority occurred when three crew members, Churchill, Millward, and Muspratt, not only deserted but absconded with the ship's small cutter, some muskets, and ammunition. Although the Bounty's crew had ingratiated themselves with the Tahitians and most had ongoing romantic relationships with individual females, Bly made it clear that he wanted the men returned. Within a few weeks, all three were located, returned to the ship, and flogged, although none of the malefactors received more than two dozen lashings inflicted over several weeks, a far more lenient punishment than they could have expected on a larger, typical British man-of-war. Well, the reviews are in, and here are some of the words being used to describe Is That Your Final Answer? The new novel by Philip D. Gibbons. Sparkling, highly entertaining, timely. Don't pass this one by. One of the most hilarious satires addressing the unique Southern California lifestyle. You can see for yourself on Amazon. Is that your final answer? A cross between office space and sex in the city from a male perspective. This is the hilarious and poignant account of one man's search for love and reason in a cold and irrational world. Now available in paperback in the Kindle store and for free on Kindle Unlimited. Is that your final answer? 
Check it out today at Amazon.com. By March of 1789, both the end of the monsoon and the acquisition of sufficient breadfruit prompted Bly to begin preparations for the ship's departure. His former cabin was now packed with over 1,000 breadfruit saplings, and on April 4th, after a lavish send-off from the various island chieftains and some emotional goodbyes, the HMS Bounty left Tahiti for its next destination, Jamaica and the Caribbean via the Endeavour Strait along present-day northern Australia. Although much of the crew was not eager to leave Polynesia, most historical accounts, including journals kept by crew members, indicate that while there was some grievances among individuals on board the bounty, collectively the situation was stable and certainly not mutinous. In the next four weeks, Bly's continually irrationally vindictive verbal outbursts directed toward various officers and several specific events changed the ship's atmosphere entirely. Two incidents seems to have alienated Christian to the extent that he finally rebelled against Bly and seized control of the ship. The first occurred around April 22nd, when Christian and a party of men were sent ashore on what is present-day Tonga to replenish the bounty's water supply. Bly did not want any bloodshed, so he ordered that the men proceed inland unarmed. When Christian was forced by hostile natives to retreat, his kegs unfilled, Bly exploded, calling him a damned cowardly rascal. When coconuts disappeared from the bounty's supply, Bly personally confronted each officer about their personal consumption, and when Christian refused to answer any questions about the matter, Bly accused him of theft and punished the entire crew with a reduction in rations. As unpredictable as these outbursts were, Bly subsequently relaxed, even inviting Christian to eat dinner with him, a formerly frequent invitation. This time Christian begged off, claiming he wasn't feeling well. Such an invitation underlined how unaware Bly was of Christian's inner turmoil. Subsequent dramatic representations of the mutiny on the bounty typically depict a final intolerable act of cruelty meted out in broad daylight by Bly on deck. Actually, just before dawn on April 28, 1789, four men entered Bly's cabin while he was sleeping and quickly subdued and tied the lieutenant's wrists behind his back. Christian, along with Charles Churchill, John Mills, and Thomas Burkett, were armed with weapons removed from the ship's armory, and they dragged Bly on deck. Although told to keep quiet, Bly began yelling, waking other officers, including John Fryer, who was warned by the armed group not to leave his cabin. On deck, Bly continued shouting at the various crew members who were either mocking their commander or anxiously hoping to accompany him, regardless of the uncertainty. Initially, Christian now brandishing a bayonet to intimidate those who might attempt to physically subdue him, lowered a small boat that could hold only Bly and a few other men. Unseaworthy and unable to hold all of the men who demanded to leave, Christian then agreed to put the bounty's launch into the water. This craft was 23 feet long, about 7 feet wide, and allowed for a sail that gave its occupants some ability to navigate. 
normally designed for at most 15 occupants, 18 crew members squeezed into the launch, with Bly eventually forced to join them. The process of seizing control of the bounty and expelling William Bly took several hours as several loyal crew members, two carpenters, and the ship's armorer insisted on getting into the launch. With the small boat sitting only seven inches above the water, this demand was impossible. Christian also knew that he could never keep the bounty operable without their specific skills. On the other hand, John Fryer pleaded to remain on the bounty, most likely realistic about Bly's chances of ever reaching any outpost of civilization alive. Christian, possibly insecure about having to deal with a senior officer subsequent to the mutiny, ordered him into the launch. Throughout this entire ordeal, Bly continued to demand that Christian stop the mutiny and finally started to plead. Consider, Mr. Christian, I have a wife and four children in England, and you have danced my children upon your knee. This entreaty seemed to momentarily fluster Christian, who responded, That, Captain Bly, that is the thing. I am in hell. I am in hell. Minutes later, Christian seems to have returned to an icy, determined demeanor. He cut off any more of Bly's pleas. Come, Captain Bly, your officers and men are now in the boat, and you must go with them. Although Christian later maintained to the other mutineers that he was surprised by the lack of resistance by any member of the crew, he was shocked by the number of men who aggressively demanded to get in the launch, including individuals like Thomas Purcell, one of Bly's main antagonists during the voyage. The three men extracted from the small boat, and some of the others continued to shout at Bly, professing their loyalty and asking that he not forget them. As the rope connecting the launch to the bounty was severed and the distance between the two vessels widened, Bly shouted back, Never fear, lads. I'll do you justice if I ever reach England. Some of the mutineers responded by tossing breadfruit trees out of the windows of the stern of the boat. Bly's clerk was able to gather up the captain's journal, a compass, and quadrant, but was unable to save Bly's extensive collection of maps and charts. Christian gave Bly his own sextant, but the lack of maps was a serious handicap. The captain's first destination was the volcanic island of Tofua, actually visible on the horizon. Christian had lowered approximately five days' worth of water and food into the boat, and Bly's immediate concern was getting as much fresh water as quickly as possible. After refilling in Tofua, Bly then hoped to proceed to the much larger Tongan island of Tonga Tapu. He easily reached his first destination, only a few miles from where he was abandoned by the mutineers. For several days, he warily sailed off the coast of the island, acquiring necessities in exchange for various trinkets or articles of clothing. When the presence of the boat became common knowledge in Tofua, a large crowd gathered, led by several of the island's tribal chieftains, who attempted to entice Bly to leave his boat and sleep on the island. During this exchange, Bly heard the ominous sound of many of the locals pounding rocks together in a deliberate rhythm. Bly knew from previous experience with Cook that this was a signal to prepare to attack. He surreptitiously ordered his men back into the launch and suddenly broke his conversation off and gave the signal to shove off just as a hail of rocks and stones began. One sailor, John Norton, attempted to accelerate the departure by jumping into the water and retrieving one of the lines that secured the boat on shore. 
Bly had already cut the rope to facilitate the getaway, but Norton unfortunately was struck in the head and knocked down. Several natives began bashing his head in while others jumped into canoes to prevent any escape. Bly and his men frantically rowed away, tossing more clothing into the water to distract their attackers, an ultimately successful tactic. This narrow escape convinced Bly that any additional attempts at interacting with native populations on other islands was simply too dangerous. Instead, he resolved to sail to what he knew to be the nearest major port, Kupang, a Dutch trading post on the island of Timor in present-day Indonesia. Unfortunately, Kupang was approximately 3,500 nautical miles away through the Endeavour Strait. Rations for all men were reduced to a mere subsistence amount, water to a quarter of a pint a day. Without any maps, Bly resorted to navigating with the instruments he had and from memory from his voyage with Cook, the Endeavour Strait, literally named after Cook's ship. He also assigned different watches to the other 17 men, allowing some to sleep while others bailed water, a constant chore necessitated by frequently turbulent weather on the open sea. Despite their tropical surroundings, the weather was rainy with sunshine rare. This left the constantly soaked crew in a permanently uncomfortable state, frequently faced with large waves that could have capsized the boat at any time. A month after the mutiny, Bly approached the Great Barrier Reef, landing on the first island he came to, which he named Restoration Island. There, the men went ashore and found water, local fruits, vegetables, and even oysters. Despite Bly's warning, the men gorged themselves and then literally passed out on land. They rested for two days and then spent four more days making their way through the maze of the reef until they reached the northernmost tip of present-day Australia. From here, they left the relative sanctuary of the area for the open sea. Kupang was still over 1,000 nautical miles away, the final stretch proving the roughest of the entire ordeal. Almost two weeks after leaving Australia, Bly finally sighted Timor, the crew at their limit of endurance. Several times during the voyage, Bly and other men, including Fryer and Purcell, became involved in protracted, nasty disputes that bordered on the physical. But now, after pulling off the inconceivable, Bly was not only jubilant, he was determined to reach Britain as quickly as possible. His next objective was Batavia, present-day Jakarta, and a passage directly back to England. One of his crew members died during the two-month recuperation in Kupang. Five others died either in Batavia or en route back to Europe. By then, Bly had secured passage for himself, his clerk, and his personal servant. He departed on October 16, 1789, reaching England on the 14th of March, 1790. On March 15th, exactly 321 days after Christian's mutiny, Bly presented himself at the Admiralty in London. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about the mutiny on the bounty. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books The Bounty by Carolyn Alexander and Lost Paradise by Kathy Marks. 
There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Thank you.